0: Hi, I'm Barnaby Cook and welcome to The Exit Plan, a podcast for business owners that are interested in learning more about how to sell their business. Each episode, I interview someone who's bought or sold a business, either a creative agency or a production company. The conversation gets under the skin of why they wanted to sell or were looking to acquire, how the deal was structured, how they agreed upon a valuation, and what lessons they learned along the way. Here we go. On today's episode, I speak to Richard Bridge, who is the co-founder and CEO of Top Banana, a creative communications agency. He talks about how it all started, with him and his friend Nick sitting around a kitchen table with just an idea that they wanted to be able to help businesses communicate better. After 10 years in business, they'd reached about $5 in revenue. They started looking for a buyer, but they couldn't find one. A few years later, Richard bought his business partner out and he talks candidly about what it felt like the day he was left running the business on his own. Richard realised that in order to achieve a sale, you need to be visible in the industry. In the end, Top Banana sold a 70% stake in the business to TBA Group during the pandemic. This is a fascinating story, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. Here we go. Thank you very much for coming on. And usually just start by asking you to
1: introduce yourself. Yeah, so my name's Richard Bridge. I'm the founder and CEO of Top Banana Communications Limited. We are, I suppose, a communications agency first and foremost. That specializes in events, incentives, venue sourcing, digital content, film, content. Yeah, we've done it for the past 24 years now. That started in the garage with just two of us. Built the business up over that time. I think the heart of everything that we do is about do a good job, make some friends and then generally people come back time and time again and that's been the sort of how we've grown the business over that time and don't get wrong there's been ups and downs as you can appreciate over time we work with variety sectors and we've got to 65 people now spread across manchester office London office and Birmingham, where i am today which is our sort of head office yeah so it's been a roller coaster i think over that 24 years it's been really enjoyable and i think sometimes as, as a an entrepreneur or being an owner of a business is can of its moments. It's quite a lonely place at times, but it's about how you find those moments of joy and remember those and sort of keep pushing yourself on time and time again. And yeah, 24 years later, I'm still in. So what's the ownership structure? Were you 50-50 with your founder? Yeah, so there's two founders originally. with 50-50, basically, you know, sat in a kitchen table. I remember it well with blue tablecloth. And they're going, well, let's set up a business and let's help businesses communicate better is what we sort of set out to do. And that's from honesty so, still true today. You know, he was ten years older than me, but we, you know, we grew it for quite some time. And then about eight years ago, he wanted out. Uh, we never really set out to sell it to one or the other. I think the plan was always to build it and sell it. You know, we had a 10-year vision at the time to grow it to a certain level and then sell it. And then lo and behold, ten years later, after the first ten years of growth. We couldn't find anybody that wanted to buy us. So then we then put a plan in together and we got to for another five years. So then how do we then put a plan in place to grow the next five years? And then around that time, he was like, yeah, no, it's not for me anymore. Would you be interested in buying me out? And I was like, no, no, we don't want to do that. We want to grow together. We want to sell together. And in the end, we came to an agreement and then just uh, moved it on. And then that was quite a scary place for me, if I'm honest, because I've never run a business on my own because we were always a duo. And then. I think it almost gave me a, that sort of startup mentality again, where I had to then go and re myself to go, yes, I have to do this. Well, my house is on the line, my kids' is, future's on the line. So you sort of, those sorts of moments do sort of, the fight or flight, you, know, you do make a difference and pleased to say, I think the departure of Nick at that point in time was a almost like releasing the shackles of where we were. And then it just gave us a springboard to then the future growth, which You know, it was phenomenal over that period of time. We were winning loads of awards. We did some amazing work. I restructured the business and we were hugely more profitable than we had been, which was good. And that also set you up for an exit strategy as well. So, you know, I'm 53 this year. My plan was always to retire at 55. So, you know, back then you sort of go, okay, what do I need to do for the next three years to then see the next three years. And therefore you can move it forward and sort of plan, you know, you've always got to have a plan when you're doing these things, as we did at the start, that's fair. I'm
0: interested that you said after about 10 years, you explored the idea of selling but couldn't find any buyers. What kind of size were you at the time and how seriously did
1: you look for a buyer? I think everybody's always in there look for a buyer. Everybody has a number in their heads that they would want to have. However, the reality of that is sometimes a bit of a miss because they don't really understand what makes up the value that you want to achieve. I can't remember where we were. I think it was something like £5 million turnover and about half a million pound profit, possibly. I can't remember what the actual figures were in the first 10 years, because it seems like so long ago. But we had this sort of drive. I think one of my lessons of that process was we always had a plan and it was a 10-year plan. And then once you finish the 10-year plan, you go, oh, great, we've achieved that. Oh, okay, what's next? And we did go through an element of trying to work out what it was at that point in time I think one of the things I recognized was that to get a sale you need to be visible and Topanana up until the those sort of first 10 years of its life Topanana was just doing great work and just focusing on the clients whereas we actually were that visible in the industry and if you look back you know I can remember when I made that specific decision and I started to go to more industry events we were part of Escom and we joined other associations. And, all of a sudden, there was a plan to how we make Top Banana famous in the industry. One, it's good for business because we still get referrals and work through being famous in the industry, but actually, it becomes then visible to any, any potential buyers as part of it. And then we did get a few inquiries through the door, but they never matched the expectations of what Nick and I both wanted out of the business. Obviously, Nick was 10 years older than me, and I think we were unrealistic at the time about what we felt the value was compared to what a buyer would want to pay. And I think that was a real eye opener because you work in a business and you think, wow, our business is worth millions. But actually, when you get down to the brass tacks of looking at the value where profitability is, because you deliver an amazing business for your people, for your clients, et cetera. But actually, if you're not profitable, then that has a problem for a potential buyer or investor coming in. Absolutely.
0: With the buyout of your business partner, how were you able to
1: kind of structure that? Because it's often difficult, isn't it? Yeah. First of all, we were really good friends. You know, And we still, that has remained the same. I mean, we don't necessarily talk as much as we used to, obviously, but I think the interesting thing about the sort of acquisition of Nick was, yeah, you know, he wrote down a number. We have a business psychologist that we work with on a regular basis. Sometimes we used to call it marriage guidance because occasionally we'd have differing opinions. And then we'd get together, agree an outcome, and we'd move on. And we were having a session on how we were going to take the business forward for the next three to five years, given the numbers have not quite hit the mark in terms of what we wanted to achieve to deliver it. it was like, how do we go and create more growth? And so I was writing on my flip chart a load of plans and what my vision was for the business. How do we go and grow it, etc. And Nick wrote two words on his. He was sell it. And I was like, okay, mate, but yeah, you know, we've been there. It's not he goes, no, I we just need, I just want to sell it. So I said, okay. And he's well, you just make me an offer. He said, this is what I want. And I said, okay, well, I'm going to get it independently valued by a consultant. So we paid a consultant to look at the profitability because we'd never been there before. And I think that's part of the challenge. You don't quite know how a business is valued, what the sorts of things we need to do. I think it's slightly easier given that one of the founders was still remaining because you're not exiting at that point in time. There's only one person that was exiting. So we had a had valuation done and I waved back to Nick and said, look, this is what the guy, this independent person, you know, by all means, you can get an independent advisor as well to advise you on the valuation. Anyway, he chose not to. He was just like, okay, well, if that's the value, then what about this? And I go, yeah, but it's not worth that. And it's also that wrangling of, you know, he obviously felt it was worth more. I was thinking it was worth less. And you have to at some point meet in the middle. The key piece of advice is as long as you can walk away knowing that you probably paid a bit more. But you it's a fair and he probably got a bit less but he felt it was fair then we walked away we shook hands and literally it was a weird day because one day he was in the business the next day it wasn't and i had to stand up in front of all the staff and say one of your founding fathers is leaving that was a scary uh, moment and then everybody went through it in many ways a uh, mourning period of oh the guy's gone you know a lot of people we both ran the business we both did different things in the business but It was quite interesting that, you know, those that were sort of worked with him more closely, had more questions and, you know, he did a brilliant job on the financial, the marketing side of it when that was my forte. So I had to learn quickly about what's going on. So I had meetings with all of the leadership team. I made a restructured, sadly made some redundancies, but for the better. And yeah, I got the leadership team to help me craft and got them on side to help build the business again. And there's, you know, the people that come and go, which is fine. But at the same time you just got to be true to your vision and plan really it proves that i could do it on my own and then we had a successful three years and then 2019 then obviously covid hit that was a bit of a scary time and then i got approached to buy my shares during covid uh, for a company the tba group which we've now sold 70 percent of my shares to yeah so i still involved but uh, yeah it's been an interesting journey
0: yeah, so you went up to 100%, did you, at the point where your business partner... Yeah, so
1: I bought him, I remortgaged my house, given that i just paid off my mortgage. Um, I remortgaged my house, paid him a chunk of money and agreed to uh, pay him off over a period of three years. And I guaranteed those payments, whereas sometimes you don't have to guarantee, but clearly he wanted to make sure he was going to get his money if I made a, a hash of it, <laughs> understandably. So it wasn't necessarily a massive burden on the business initially. But obviously, we had to make sure that we hit the payments over the period. And I, what I was doing quite wisely was not necessarily taking a huge salary and getting the benefits at the time of paying them off. I was banking the money, so I had it in a reserve account that was enabled to me to sort of know that I've got the money in the bank. So if that did go wrong, that I could also afford to pay them without giving up my mortgage, as it were. And, yeah, and in fact, I think I paid him off. I had the money a year early, which was sat in the bank, ready to pay him external to the running costs of the business. So, yeah, so that's a nice feeling, knowing that you've got money banked away a year early then, because theoretically, the final year payment was during the pandemic, so that was a bit of a... Scary, scary time. time. And he literally, he phoned me up this year's pandemic warning to lockdown, said so just checking you're still going to be good for your payments. In <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> like the whole world is sort of collapsing around <laughs> yeah. us.
0: But just want to check Yeah. Okay, so how did the conversation
1: with TBA come about? Were you looking to sell? Did they approach you? When I first took over from Nick, it's amazing how much attention I got. So there were people literally... I think there were two companies particularly that were knocking on my door going, oh, you've just bought, have you thought about selling to join this group? And I was like, no, I've only just bought the company. i relative see if I can do it myself. And I entertained a few conversations. Like I say, everybody has a number and everybody has a, a something in their mind to go, actually, yeah, if I could get that, then I can retire and I don't need to work again, blah, blah, blah. Not that I think people who have built businesses or want to stop because they inherently are, just want to keep working and doing, it's just about choices and different things, really. So yeah, I got approached about three or four times. There was two companies that got down to doing due diligence, Weirdly, really during the three years of paying, as well as paying Nick off, and uh, approached me. And yeah, I think the owning 100% is a burden. You are on your own, it's quite a lonely, lonely place. But we just stuck to the plan, did what we did. I went through conversations, but I was always very clear around if you're not willing to entertain this type of number, then I'm not really interested in it. And the two other companies that were looking to acquire, all of a sudden they were getting acquired, so they backed out the conversations. And then the other one literally was, uh, as the pandemic hit, went, uh, yeah, sorry, we're gonna have to put everything on hold, we're not interested. And then during the pandemic, I think Top Banana specifically did very well during the pandemic. Yeah, we were, because of our film side of our business, And because we were used to entertaining people through a glass screen, we were able to sort of pivot, if you like, quite quickly to doing virtual events because we were great at making TV programs, which in essence is what the virtual event is. So all of a sudden we got a TV studio here, we converted that into being a big LED wall backdrop, be able to entertain audiences. And we did quite well. And we were uh, all of a sudden on LinkedIn particularly, we were quite famous for it because we were showing content that wasn't just a slide and a speaker in a small box. We were creating engaging programs that we were able to broadcast to the companies that we were working for. And we won sort of like 22 new clients over that pandemic period, and um, big clients as well, um, because we had a product that nobody else was doing. Well, doing well, should we say. I mean, the world's caught up in a heartbeat now. But and during that time, I got approached. I got a phone call saying, oh, would I be interested in a conversation, this group called TBA, I never heard of them, were interested in the conversation. And I said, Yeah, go on. Well, I, I happily have a, a preliminary call. And so I had the conversation with Guy Horner, um, pitched off really well, um, liked what his business was about and what he, you know, he talked about. And then it took about a year to for the various conversations. He went very quiet at one point and I was thinking, Oh, maybe he's backing out like the others had. And he was looking at different acquisitions as well. So I think finally he wanted to try and get the deal done by December and then it ended up being done in March. Because obviously all of these conversations happen in confidence with just myself. And then I had to, at some point I had to bring in the leadership team and that was a scary time sitting down with the leadership team going, just so you know, I decided to sell. But they, if I'm honest, they could understand given the pandemic scare as that that was in terms of unknown world that we were in.
0: What size was your team and what sort of turnover were you doing at that point?
1: We're about sixty-five people when the pandemic hit, doing about twelve million revenue. You know, profitability-wise, about half million to seven fifty operating profit. We weren't small by a long stretch of the imagination for in terms so of some companies, but yeah. And it's, you know, weirdly, the TVA group was only about thirty people, or I think pre-pandemic there were around forty or fifty people, and then they rationalised to thirty. So in many ways, acquiring Top Banana was a big deal for them because all of a sudden they're more than doubling the size of their group if you like and Top Banana was was big significant acquisition and if i want to state one of the things that on reflection when i was looking at tba prc you know which is one i didn't know whether a listed company because their website is plc tba so i didn't know whether they were listed or not um i didn't know how big the group was because um, they didn't necessarily share a lot of things, and one in hindsight, one of the things I will probably do differently next time was do a bit more due diligence on them rather than just doing due diligence on us. Because you know I didn't really get oh they're 30 people because they externally they're perceived to be this big group of companies, whereas actually in real terms they're they're a small company doing big work. Don't get me wrong, the work they do is world class and is absolutely brilliant, but. They were an unknown, you know, they weren't necessarily that famous TBA. And that was, I suppose, I learned from myself.
0: While I've got you here, I just wanted to let you know a little bit about me. After having acquired a TB commercials production company earlier this year, I'm currently doing a roll-up in the video production space, and I'm looking for production companies to join my group. If you don't think you're quite there yet, I'm also spending some of my time advising smaller businesses on business growth and exit planning. So if you want to chat to me about that, drop me a line on LinkedIn. Here end the advert. How did you go about sort of valuing the
1: business and structuring the deal? I had a bit of experience, obviously, when I acquired Nick in terms of understanding the mechanics of value. I supplied them with a load of information. I talked to them about the number that I had in my head in terms of what I wanted to achieve. I forecast future projections in terms of what my business plan was and how I saw growth within the next sort of three to five years and talked about how that would happen and where we were winning and all those sorts of things. So I didn't predict as well as I should the following success of the next two years because I actually quite lowballed quite a lot of the figures because I won when I was doing the deal, it was, you know, if you hit this amount, they will pay you this amount. If you hit this amount, we'll pay you this amount. And But if you don't hit it, then you don't get that amount. And then you're like, oh, okay. Then so all of a sudden there's risk to it. So I was like, no, I need to make sure I'm going to hit my targets. But in fact, we did ended up delivering four times the amount that they were expecting. So it was amazing. But the good thing was, I had all of my three years as an accumulator. So I had to If I did well in one year, I had to do less. I didn't have to do as well the following year or the year after. So the accumulator actually was one of the good things I think I negotiated because it used a bit, unpredictable, isn't it? Particularly during the pandemic. So the structure, I had a bit of knowledge. I did work with have like an advisor that works within Top B, a guy called Andrew Winterburn. You might know from Evcom. So he sort of acted as previously as a bit of a chairman. So he was advising me. Bit more about the deal, but obviously at the end of the day they came back with a proposal. I countered it with a, another proposal, and then you sort of get to that sort of place where you go, okay, I'm happy with this, but then this is what are the plans? that the they went through a process of trying to roll my shares up into Group again, and I was like, no, no, I know what Top Banana is capable of. I'll keep my shares in Top Banana and for the time being. There's an opportunity for Group to be further down the road, but then I, you know once I in the business, then I need to make sure that I'm happy with it, because you're starting a new relationship with somebody that you, one of the sudden who's a business partner that in essence would have control over your shares or your company, you've got to make sure that you can get on with them. And that's all the niceties that sit around a sale are great. But when it comes to the brass tacks of, if you do well, I think it's all very well. And you know, Top Banana, thankfully, has done really well over the past three years since the acquisition. But if it hadn't gone so well, Yeah, the conversations might have been a little different around there. But, you know, you need to make sure when you're doing the deal that you've got exit opportunities around, even though you're, there. So I still own 30%. So what's the exit plan for my 30%? Because if I didn't like working with the group, how do I get out and how do I sell my shares? So putting mechanics in the contracts around that. What are the rules of engagement around the decision-making criteria? Because as an owner-operator, you've, made all the decisions yourself and you haven't had to go and ask permission, if you like, from somebody else that knows nothing about your business. So making sure that those sorts of things are, are clear before you sign the contracts and all those sorts of things and having good legal advice. You know, I spent a fortune on legal fees during the process, just sort of getting the contract in the right place with the managing the risks, if you like, of what it is. Because at the end of the day, I'm only 52. So I was 51 at the time so 53 this year, so it was like, okay, well, how do we make sure that I've still got a lot of life left in me? One of the things that actually was what attracted me to the group was the fact that I had a bigger role or a slightly different role, because part of the preparing to settle was making sure I had a leadership team that were able to run the business without me. And you have trust and faith in them that everything's cooking on gas. The, the way that we get business in, that there was no reliance on, me and my role. So, you know, I have a managing director in the business who does a brilliant job. I have a leadership team that do a brilliant job. I have a commercial team that go out and generate sales, et cetera. So I knew that actually when I did sell that actually the business could still sustain without me, but I didn't necessarily want to give it work because I am still fairly young. So how do I? The TBA wanted me to be the managing director of their brands division because they've got three divisions: sports, brands, and entertainment. So the brands is sort of their heartland and core of their business. They wanted to learn from what success at top and, on, and how did I then share that love across the brands division to help that grow and develop. But it also helped me go, okay, well I'm now part of a bigger group. I've got a bigger role. You know, we're currently a about fifty million pound business, which all of a sudden is a lot bigger than where we were. So. But, you know, I feel like I've grown myself as part of the, you know, I feel like I've got promotion as part of the sale process. So, and that was a real attraction to me joining their group. Whereas I wouldn't want to just join a group and do the same job, if that makes sense you. I wanted to lift and elevate every day to school day, I always say. If I can learn and develop myself a little bit more, then that's growth. And they've given me the freedom to, you know, I mentor now as part of Fastball at 15. My mentor of businesses as well. So I'm able to do other things that interest me for the benefit of the group and the business, obviously, in the industry. But at the same time, it helps you keep learning and growing as well.
0: Yeah, it's interesting what sort of hearing your motivations for wanting to sell. But it sounds like you were suddenly sort of on your own. You kind of enjoyed the growth that that business took on, but you just spotted sort of a bigger opportunity, right? Yeah,
1: yeah. No, absolutely. It's It's never just about the money, right? It's not about the money. and I think people sometimes it's, Just because you own the company, you get paid a salary just like everybody else. And it's only really at a point in time when you own the business, majority of owner-operators would reinvest majority of the money they make every year back in the business to grow it again. And that's the sort of cycle that you go through. And yes, you might get pay rises, et cetera, and you're able to get slightly more dividend towards the end of the year, but it's never transformational type of numbers. But it's only the point where you get to a certain level in your business where you can take transformational numbers out out of your business in a profitable manner. So you're always just an employee. So actually, you know, I've got bills to pay just like everybody else. So it's actually when you sell, that's the moment when you go, aha, I'm able to sort of release some of that 24 years of hard work. Uh, You It wasn't necessarily living a lavish lifestyle. And I think everybody looks at owner or entrepreneurs and goes, oh, well, they, they must be minted. And whereas most people who own their businesses are not necessarily minted, they they're just you know hardworking people who take risks, and then they're able to sort of you know, get a reward for their risk at some point later on in, in the future.
0: Yeah, in, in fact, they're often massively sort of overexposed to one asset that they own. Yeah. <laughs> like that's often like pretty much the only thing they do own. They yeah, might yeah. have a house, you know. So actually, there's a huge amount of risk there.
1: Yeah, I, th- I think often people overinflate their expectations of a sale because you know at the end of the day as an owner you've got like a baby and you're growing and developing nurturing it and watching it grow and you have massive attachment to that baby and i think the interesting thing is you think that baby's worth a fortune whereas others look at it and go actually no it's you know for me that baby's worth x which is often a lot less and it's coming to the realization that a lot of people don't sell because their overinflated expectations of what they're going to achieve. Whereas I think one of the things that uh, going back to when I acquired from Nick was understanding the multiples that people would attribute to a business around, you know, looking back for the last three years, profitability, looking forward three years, profitability predictions. But then how would you set the, you know, what sort of multiple would you expect to get? Because people go, oh, well, i make 250,000 pound profit. Well, that's not going to give you millions of somebody coming in and give you a million quid because it's not realistic and also where does the relationship lie with your clients because they're the people who generate income if they sit with you as an owner then the value is in you not in the business so therefore you have to plan to extract yourself from the business for the business to run itself and then the true value of that business sits within the business not with you as an as an owner operator and i think often certainly smaller business think their business is worth something because a person who generates all the income, all the money and revenue for it. But actually, if you could sit outside of that and help coach it through and put people in place to deliver the numbers, that's the best place to be because there's real true value in the business there. Can you talk a little bit about multiples in
0: general terms of sort of small production companies and agencies in, in this
1: space? Yeah, I think the value is always based on what they call operating profit um, of what you've got left at the end of the day. And often, they will look back three years. Interestingly, one of the things, because predictably in the sort of event sector or communication sector, your profitability might go like this because it, it can be a bit, oh, we've done well, let's spend some money to invest, and then all of a sudden you have a downturn on it and then you go back up again and it's down. And so it is a bit of a roller coaster. So roughly speaking, it's around three years looking back. And about three years looking forward of what your operating profit is and generally speaking a company would look at anything between a four times multiple to a certain times multiple so take your average yearly figure times by four or to seven and that's roughly speaking where you'll end up i think if you've got intellectual property within your organization so digital businesses particularly where they're a very high fee base organization, they might have some intellectual collateral within that. And so we have some digital propriety software that we've developed that sits within our business and that helps bump up a, a multiple because they've got product that they can actually sell and therefore uh, that's actually worth more. But you've got to make sure you single those things out as part of the deal. So you're not just looking at sales from making a fill or make, doing an event. You're able to sort of look at other areas of revenue, similarly with venues, commissions and stuff like that. Yeah, so anywhere between four and seven is what i class as a predictable. Not many deals go from the seven, if I'm honest, most of them are lower.
0: What would you say is the sort of minimum sort of operating profit that you would need to have to kind of get a four times multiple?
1: There's a significant step once you hit past the million pounds operating profit. All of a sudden you're accelerated into the six and sevens after a million pounds. Roughly speaking, I think you probably get, if you're around three hundred to 750, I would say you have sort of four to five. And I, whenever I spoke to a couple of brokers during the process as well, just to see what they had to say and what they would value the business on. And they always said to me, you know, if once you've passed a million pounds operating profit, then that's a game changer in terms of whether it's venture capital, private equity, they would start to look at you then as, as an opportunity because one of the interesting things about when you're looking for a buyer, you know, you can go to a broker and get a sale and they can go out to people. But I always say, for me, that was always, I'm on the market. It's a bit like put your house up for sale. I'd rather somebody come to me and say, I'm interested in buying your business because then I know it's worth more to them to buy my business rather than me going, all right, I want to sell, so therefore um, open to sell. And that was part of my decision going back 50 years ago. How do we become more famous how do we become more visible in the industry to be attractive to have the industry looking at us going oh these guys seem to be on fire these guys seem to be doing something maybe we'll buy into that Uh, because you might get somebody from the industry you might get somebody that is private equity or investment and then there's also you might get somebody that's not completely in the industry just wants to like particularly if there's some more of a regional you know there are a lot of us companies buying into europe because they need a european leg so Sometimes it's not necessarily local, it could be more international, looking for you to play a different role. So they comes from all over the place, really.
0: Okay, so with the TBA deal, because you've talked kind of a bit about the sort of financial incentives and the structures there, but from a sort of qualitative perspective, like what opportunities
1: did you see from joining that group? Some of the things I thought originally, I was thinking, okay, we've got a big creative team, so our creative team could support those guys on deliver work, you know, we certainly lost during the pandemic our HR manager. So, okay, we're going to centralise an element of cost a big part of the group. Uh, if I'm honest, in practice, it didn't quite work. I think there's been opportunities where the group has helped us sell a bigger story. So we're able to go to fairly significant clients now and go, well, we're part of this big group. You know, we do loads of sports, we do loads of entertainment. Yeah, surely we'd be able to deliver you a small event or whatever. So. I think the gravitas of the group and the kudos that that gives has been really good. I think the internal workings hasn't been as good. I still think we talk about integration. We're still very separate. But part of that is if it's not broken, why are we fixing it? Because Top B are flying, do really well, and TBA do really well in their own right as well. So actually, the coming together needs to be carefully curated and managed because we don't want to smash things together and then again make a mess of it and that's part of my job now because i sit in both camps i'm able to sort of go okay how do we get our finance teams talking more closely together how do i get our creative teams because we've all got different specialisms for the different types of work that we do because tba didn't really do you know 90 of our work is internal communications tba don't do that type of work so we do some bits of it but it's not real specialists in it whereas Actually, that's a real benefit to, and we're sharing clients now, this where our internal comms clients delivering some stuff and then Now they're doing some sport activations for those clients through another business within the group. So there is cross-fertilization. It could be better, don't get me wrong, but yeah, it has been, I suppose, more the QDOS. And I think the weird one for me was Topanana is quite a well-known company in the offence communications industry. TBA is not a well-known company within that, although the work that they do is phenomenal. So they've got a bigger story to tell. And part of my plan is making sure that TBA becomes more famous as well as Top Banana. And that's, you've got to be purposeful about it. You've got to make sure that you're turning up to things, you're showing up to your social media's happening, I mean, and all those sorts of things.
0: So that was a good move on their part because, you know, as part of the acquisition, they've got you, you know, and all your experience, which you're now applying to their, you know, you might think it would be the other way around. Yeah, but no, kind no. Of...
1: it did feel a bit like <laughs> Top Banana bought TBA apart from the financials because a lot of the processes a lot of the ways of working so certainly from a marketing perspective and those types of things about how to become more famous absolutely top bananas led where even our sustainability you know policies and things like that are more led from top bananas way of working versus the other side so i at the end of the day we're all in yeah from day one of the acquisition it was very much okay i just need to switch off my group head if you like and start to make groups successful rather than just think about us as top banana. So don't wrong, it is sometimes even still difficult. Like even this interview is about top banana. It's not about TBA group. So it will be listed as, I'm sure, a top banana thing rather than a TBA thing because people probably never heard a TBA. But that part of that needs to change and, and therefore I show up. I think this year is my final payment from the group. And then I've just got to offload my 30% as it were. But, you know, every day is school day and... Yeah, it's just you keep learning and keep growing, and the businesses, both all businesses in within the group are flying at the moment, which is really nice to see. Yeah, we've got loads of improvement still happening.
0: So, what's next for you? Are you still on track for your target of fifty-five retirement?
1: As I said to you, know, Guy and I get on really well. Um, obviously, he's the main, he's the owner, hundred percent owner of the group. So I sort of said to him, look, you know, next year, I'd like to have some choices around whether I reduce my hours. So it's less of a full time job. But then how do we then create the succession plan within the business so people can still grow and we can still, if business is growing anyway, but how come I can then start to fade away and be more of a consultant or chairman type figure? I still got a lot to give. And, you know, at the end of the day, top banana is my baby. So I want to make sure it continues to flourish and continues to grow. So I don't think I'm going anywhere soon. But at the same time it's about having some choices around how do i keep learning and keep growing myself so i've invested in a few businesses as a result so i've got other interests which i'd like to spend a bit more time in not necessarily in the events industry so how do i try and do other things as well or mentor or you know guide small businesses that want to you know like even this story about how do you get prepare yourself for sale because once you've done it once you actually in essence sell that or give some advice to others around that process just to make sure that they're not stitching themselves up or indeed you know doing it in the right way and in a what i call an honest trustworthy way that make sure you maximize what you can but also recognizing the fact that businesses will pay what they expect to return and you've got to manage your risk levels of what you want out of it. because even when they you agree a deal doesn't mean to say that's what you're going to get if you don't deliver on the, the performance for the next three years or whatever your term of um, exit is. So
0: looking back on
1: your experience of having sold Topanano, is there anything you'd do differently? I think the, at the moment it's quite an interesting one because since the sort of acquisition there, Topanano has been, as I say, four times more successful than we planned. So you go, maybe I shouldn't have sold it so quickly <laughs> because I would have been quitting. However, I think the one thing I learned was probably due diligence on the people you're being acquired by probably more than as much as they would want to do due diligence on you, because as much as you can get bamboozled by the telephone numbers of the acquisition amounts and things like that, the reality is you still got to be embedded within that company within the next three years. Although you know it's a happy story for me in the end, but it could have been a, such a different thing because I hadn't asked as many questions about them. As I should have, and I should have known what I was getting into bed with, as it were, because you know there has been some surprises along the way. You go, oh, I thought you'd have been sorted on that, because not everybody's like you, and you just assume that they are because they're a successful business as well. So yes, yeah, to do the due diligence on them as well, and I think you don't overegg and what your amount is that you want out of it. I think is the other thing is business owners I speak to, and they go, yeah, yeah, I want six million, and you go, okay, so if you think about six million you want to achieve six million on exit, then let's take that back to divide them by five. So that's the profitability you've got to be doing for the next three years consistently to get your six million. So just even if you took the five as a figure, you can just work out knowing what your number is and how do you work it back. So you don't overrate the money.
0: Yeah, and I mean, you know, that's often the case for business owners if they do get their business to doing over a million a year in profit, then there's quite a strong argument for just keeping it. You know, if you have put that management team in place and you are consistently
1: generating profits, then another way, why sell? I think it's about your own life choices, and I think that's one of the things for me, was I want to retire by the time I'm 55. That was always a decision that's what I set my pension going back 20 years, so if that's my decision, then I need to have sold by the time I'm 52, and then it takes a year to sell, so that takes us back to 51, and I sold when I was 50 to TVO, so and by the time I've sold my 30%, I will be probably 55 by the time I've done that deal. So I always say, so you have a plan, stick to the plan. You can get greedy over stuff. It's easy to. And yeah, if you don't want to sell, don't sell. At the same time, you've got to have your life choices around what do you want to do next or what's the point of the realisation for me during the pandemic was, you know, I was doing really well. We'd win agency of the year through, I've gone through, um, I think, three agency of the year that year, 2019, and you get to 2020. In March twenty twenty, you go, Okay, well, I've still got a mortgage. I just lost three million quid overnight. What am I doing all of this for? Because at the end of the day, you carry the risk as well as the reward. And sometimes it's going, Okay, well, how do I put myself in a better comfortable position financially so I don't need to work anymore? Yeah, and reap the rewards of that plan because I can still go on and do a job and get paid because that's exactly what I'm doing now. I get paid to do a job I love. I enjoyed my job, I wouldn't do it if I didn't. Yeah, I just don't own it. But I still get a load of dividends because of my 30%. So,
0: yeah, and actually, that's a good mechanism, right? Because even though Top Banana went on and did sort of much better than anyone expected after you'd sold, you actually still retain that 30%. So, that you know, you will benefit from from that increased performance.
1: It was good for Guy because one, he was buying a business. If he'd have bought it 100%. Then it would have been okay. Well, I'm just getting paid a salary. Whereas, actually, by keeping me ingrained within it, one made it sure it was successful, so I get my dividends. And two, you know, it helps the sort of that bond and the relationship that you have because I'm a business partner with Guy rather than just being an employee. And that's quite a different mental thing that you have to deal with because all of a sudden, you know, there are some things that I go, I make decisions just as I would do normally. I think, oh, I need to just let Guy know that I've made that decision. They're not much because I He's very autonomous with um, allowing me to, he knows that I'm going to make the right decision generally. So um, sometimes he just wants to make sure, particularly when it involves boot numbers. So that's part of the communication catch-ups we really have regularly with him. So And allows him to go off and do what he wants to do about acquiring more businesses. Or this week we just set up in the States. So we're just expanding into the US now, which is great. We're in Nevada only because of the primarily... For the formula one that we've got quite a few activations in vegas for the formula one grand prix that's obviously this year i think in november time so we in essence it was made sense to set up in nevada but it also opens the door to lots more us businesses particularly within top banana velocity and in the tba so lots to go after
0: you know a lot of listeners to this podcast are business owners who are perhaps at the beginning of their journey thinking about selling any sort of advice for how you prepare
1: your business for a sale? Put your uh, management team in place that so the value is in the business, not in you as an individual. That's a real key one. Um, don't overthink or overexpect the amount of money that you want for the business because numbers speak for themselves in the cold light of day. And again, I say, do some research on the companies that you want by you and like-minded, same values, all those types of things. Because if you have a target list in mind, that makes it so much easier that you can just be visible to those companies so that they can, oh, actually we've won a PCU.
0: Great. Well, that's everything from me. Thanks, Barnaby. Nice, well, nice to be here. Yeah, no, thanks very much. That was great. Thank you very much for listening to the Exit Plan podcast. If you enjoyed it, please leave us a review to help other people find us. If you're wondering what's next for you and your business and want to chat about an exit plan, connect with me on LinkedIn.